Hey there. Welcome to 7th Heaven, a lesbian recap. I'm Lindsay, and I'm joined by my co-host and real-life partner, Carling. We're diving into the 90s hit drama through today's lens. Get ready for our off-the-cuff commentary and peeling back the layers of the Camden family. We'll tackle everything from family rules, life lessons, and 90s fashion. Join us every week for a light-hearted queer perspective and a trip down memory lane. Whether you're a die-hard fan or new to the show, this recap is for you. So find us anywhere you get your podcasts at 7th Heaven, a lesbian recap. Hi there, Carling here. Whether this is your first episode of this podcast you're listening to, or you're working backwards from the more recent ones, these earliest episodes require a bit of patience, humor, and understanding. These episodes are a time machine back to when I had no idea what I was doing in editing, sound quality, or production. And there were two hosts. We were full of passion, laughter, and a whole lot of trial and error. But here's the thing. These episodes are the essence of my humble beginnings, and I'm hoping that's part of the charm. The raw authenticity that shaped the foundation of this podcast. Although this podcast has evolved and my interview skills and audio quality have vastly improved, the heart and soul of these episodes remain timeless. The stories I shared back then, they still hold significance and are worth hearing. These episodes make me appreciate how far I've come. So thank you in advance for your patience and enjoy. It's like, is this like the rats fleeing a sinking ship? Like what is happening here? Like, am I going the wrong way? Freaking Michelle, why are we recording? Well, a whole bunch of things. Why are we recording an intro three weeks after we interview- interviewed Jillian? Um, I believe one of us deleted our intro and outro. <laughs> it was me. Ah. You're very sweet to be so neutral. I don't know what I was doing. I like I was doing something and then I hit delete because it looked like it was, was a duplicate. First, that was your first mistake. <laughs> It looked like a duplicate file, so I hit delete, and then both of them deleted. But then I can't get it off of Zencaster, like after the fact, like get it back. No, because we recorded it straight onto GarageBand from your closet. Oh right, right, right. And so it was just, it was just, yeah. Like I looked and I was like, damn it, we did not do this on Zencaster. Serves us right for being hilarious and together and having good sound quality. We just, we just couldn't make it last. <laughs> yeah, we just can't win. And no. then the reason we're not recording from the comfort of your closet today is because Lindy had to go to the emergency room mm-hmm. and ended up having to get tested for COVID. Yeah. And so we had to restart another self-isolation. Yeah, this is getting old. It's getting old real quick. Does that mean that um, you, like... Because she's negative, do you have to still isolate? As long as she's symptomatic, she should be, mm-hmm. like, staying away, like, wearing masks, all this stuff. Um, yeah. But she got tested and was negative for COVID. Thank the Lord. Yeah, no, that's really good. Because that would be her luck. Like, <laughs> she literally hasn't gone anywhere. <laughs> that she yeah, can. she hasn't gone anywhere, and she's the one that's going to get it. <laughs> It's like, I'm just trying to work from home. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, pep up. Oh, I'm sleepy. I know. It's late. It's 1030 on a Friday night. Lord. 
just can't party like we used to. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen when I have to go back to work because now I'm used to staying up until like 11 or 12 or 1 mm-hmm. in the morning and I don't get up until about 8. <laughs> but like when I go back to work, I start work at 8. Yeah. There has to be some sort of grace period. Like companies need to be like, <laughs> okay, for the first two weeks you can show up at like 10. Yeah. And wear yeah. pajamas. <laughs> oh my God. And then they'll just slowly like ease them out of it. <laughs> it's so crazy. Just thinking I know, about I was, it. I was thinking about that today. I'm like, I haven't put on real pants in like two months. Like I, when I go, when I'm at home, I wear my comfy yoga pants. When I go out, I wear my like more fitted yoga pants. Um, But I haven't put on like jeans or work pants in two, like in, well, a month. Yeah. Over a month. Yeah. So I'm not sure how that's going to go when I finally need to put them back on. Yeah. I'm not ready. Might have to wear some moo's for a while. <laughs> um, It's so interesting. So the episode that we're about to listen to that we recorded forever ago, mm-hmm. well, like just a couple weeks ago, um, is with Jillian, who is an infectious disease expert. And... Like, things just change so quickly that even, like, it's only been two weeks since we talked to her and so many things mm-hmm. are already changing. Like, with Alberta, they're already starting to open some businesses in, like, a f- in phases. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, there's still no, there's still no talk about when I'm going back to work, but. I know that a lot of places, though, are still, even though they can open, they're not yet. You know, they're being really cautious and they're just not in which I think is interesting because especially for like a small business you would think that they would like want to get right back into opening but I think because they've come up with these solutions like on during this time that they can still have business and be safe yeah. I think that yeah. that's a little bit easier for them to kind of make those decisions so and I've seen some, some small businesses have been posting things like you know we're taking a bit more time because we want to get it right Mm-hmm. which is really refreshing because like, yeah. the last thing we want is like a huge second wave because everybody just rushed to open sooner than they were ready. Yeah. And I, I don't know um, personally if I want to go to a mall or a restaurant anytime soon. Yeah. Really... I was thinking this, like I was looking at like our favorite restaurant, Benny's. Mm-hmm. Um, like they put up like plexiglass between all their booths. Like they're doing mm-hmm. what they need to because they want to reopen, which is so great. And I miss them. Mm-hmm. But like, I don't want to go to a restaurant. I know. It just doesn't seem worth it. Like it they're very yeah. milkshakes. Just, you know, <laughs> I've gone this long. I can go just like a few more weeks or months maybe. Yeah. It just, it just feels, uh, I don't know. It makes me nervous to, to think about, you know, walking in a mall or wa- like sitting down at a restaurant with other people around you. I think the vibe is just going to be so weird for a long time. Although here's what I'll say. I heard on the news that um, like all the malls are implementing like one way traffic. Mm-hmm. And um, and like I've been I've been saying I think since the day I was born, I was <laughs> born as a crotchety old man. And I've been saying like places like Costco, huge shopping malls, they should have one way traffic. They should have yielding, stopping, 
like right of way you should have to merge like it should just be like driving because like it's just a madhouse when you go like at Costco it's like the wild west usually Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. people just stop in the middle of an aisle turn their cart so nobody can get past and I just think like yeah yeah my favorite thing is when they show their card and then they walk in and then they dead stop like yeah two feet into the entrance to put their card back or to look at whatever like could you please move I'm a very like assertive shopper I grab my cart and I like get it done I don't have time to wander around like everyone's usually in my way and I'm I'm just like I'm just I'm not aggressive I'm just you know I, I don't have time to yeah dilly dally so yeah I'm the same way Lindy doesn't let me have a shopping cart in Costco. Only she's allowed to have the cart because I get too aggressive. Oh, really? See, I am the only one that pushes the cart. Uh, if I'm shopping with anybody, I need... <laughs> I have noticed. <laughs> I, need, I need control of the shopping cart. Um, and everyone that I shop with knows that. They're, they will start with it and they're like, do you want the cart? I'm like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes I try to like let them have it for... A little bit to see if I can do it, but I literally can't. <laughs> oh my God. I swear to God that has happened to us. I know. <laughs> where I'm just like pushing it because I think I'm being helpful. And then you're just like, you know what? I'll just take over. Thanks. I know. Even when I'm like <laughs> big and pregnant and people want to like help me push the card. I'm like, nope, that makes me even more mad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope if like, um, again, I don't know who I heard say this, maybe Trudeau, mm-hmm. but he was saying, you know, when you think about like before 9-11, it was unheard of that you might have to take your belt and shoes off through security. Yeah. Um, and now it's just like, it's obvious it's common practice. It's just become like the way that we do things at airports. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there will be some changes like with with like public places like restaurants and shopping. When your kids have kids, we'll be able to tell them, <laughs> you know, there was a time once when... You could just you walk down an aisle any direction you want <laughs> and they won't believe us. Exactly. I was listening to uh, this guy's um, Insta story tonight and he was talking about how if you, cause he's a server and he's like, if you go to a restaurant and order something and you're sitting there and putting others' lives at risk and you don't tip, like you need to leave. <laughs> like, oh my God. Was it gleefully Tim? Yeah, it was. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> I'm going to like but, send him a little message and be like, hey, girl, uh, my BFF loves you. <laughs> I do love him. I know he's funny. But you know what he was saying? Because he's a server in the States. He makes $2.90 an hour. What? Yeah. Like that's what servers, that's what minimum wage is. And then the rest is made up in tips and that's it. Oh my God. That's awful i know so if you're not tipping like they're not making any money i i often send him messages about coming to canada i'm like dude you gotta come to canada because you're get like you would get paid so much more he's always having like not always having health issues but he's had you know health issues where he's can't even go to the doctor because his insurance doesn't cover whatever and it's like oh oh my god you need to marry him yeah bring him here I mean, he's super gay. Well, yeah, but I mean, you know. But I mean, I could really use a gay BFF at this point in my life, so. Um, 
I think it would work out. Excuse oh. me. <laughs> I was like, what? what's this bit? Where's she going with this? Oh my God. <laughs> A gay ma- male BFF. Oh. Oh. Oh, I'm the worst. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah, I could really use like a real straight best friend, you know? Just somebody who really is straight. <laughs> oh, amazing. Oh I love you. Listen, Tim, put it on notice. We are collectively proposing to you. Come here. Yeah. We'll marry you. Yeah. I guess I can marry him too. Maybe that's more appropriate. I don't know. Would it be? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. We'll let him pick. You pick one of us. Yeah. Marry us. Um, I was listening to the episode of Let's Go to Court where they talk about that girl's tumor. Oh, God. With hair yeah. and teeth. And, um, and what did they name it? Oh, Tommy Tumor. Tommy the Tommy Tumor. tumor. And, but she was saying like they had to look up what hospital they could go to because their insurance, like you couldn't just go to seek medical help. Yeah. You had to make sure your insurance was going to be like covered. And the fact that they weren't even going to look at it, like the ultrasound place wasn't even going to look at it until like Like a few days later and she was in excruciating pain. Like I just couldn't imagine like. Being in a medical situation, being like, okay, well, hold on, pause for a second. I feel like I'm dying, but I need to make sure that I go to the right hospital because I can't afford to die at the wrong hospital. Like, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, I like how we're talking about all this, but like our interview that we're just about to start is with somebody who who went to South Sudan, which is a brand new country and didn't have power yet. Oh, yeah. And, like, had to provide, like, medical Our care. privilege is going. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's true, though. It's so, yeah. And, like, this COVID really, like, drives it home that, like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, all, both me, you, Claire, and Lindy had to get tested. And it was just a matter of, like, making a phone call. Yep. And within, you know, 48 hours, we were tested and within... 48 hours after that, we knew the results and it cost us zero dollars. Yeah. Yeah, it is pretty incredible. I know that there are flaws in the system. I know that people have long waits for surgeries and things like that. But I think that compared to other countries, I think that we're looking pretty good healthcare wise. Speaking of other countries, guys, we had somebody download an episode from Bahrain, which is, where did I say it was? Pakistan? No. Israel? Oh. No. Oh, God. Oh, I this is going to make us look bad. I'm so embarrassed. India? No. <laughs> so, this is an island. And it's near Qatar. So, it's in the Middle East. Maybe it's one of uh, Lindy's friends that oh she met in God, Qatar. Oh, my God. You're right. She was. It's very close. I would say just barely a hop, skip, and a jump. <laughs> Um, well, thanks for the download, person from Bahrain. Sorry, we don't know where you are. Yeah, it's near, like, Kuwait. We need to add that to our um, podcast uh, circuit that we'll go on. Yeah. <laughs> a little tour. 
gotta go to brain (laughs) (laughs) oh it does look adorable it's like very beachy yeah well shout out thanks for listening all right should we get into this episode i don't think so (laughs) (laughs) yes we shall So, Jillian, why don't you start out by telling us, um, like, what it is you do and, and like, and how you got there? Because I thought that was really interesting. Uh, sure. Um, so, I'm Canadian, originally, from Vancouver. Um, but, uh, so, trained as a nurse in Canada, um, knowing that I would want to do work in the global health sphere. Uh, when I graduated, but um, so I graduated, I think it was 2009 and worked in Vancouver for a while, Um, but uh, then came to London, moved to London in 2011 um, because I wanted to do my uh, master's in public health, um, knowing that if I wanted to do work in the kind of global health uh, world, that it was really important that I had a little bit more public health training. Um, And uh, yeah, so I kind of fell in love with London uh, really wanted to stay after I finished my my master's, um, but uh, London was still very much in recovery from the recession at that stage, and I was really struggling to find a job. And unfortunately, I couldn't register as a nurse here, uh, even though they had a, a shortage um, because my qualifications didn't transfer, which is really quite sad. Oh, um, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, a bit frustrating. Um, but uh, it was all for the best because I. Um, after about four months of looking really hard for a job, I got a call from an Irish organization um, called Goal uh, asking if I wanted to take a job in South Sudan, which at that point had only been a country for maybe a year. Maybe oh, two. wow. Um, yeah, uh, still the world's newest country, but at the time it was very much uh, in its infancy as um, having split from, from northern Sudan or kind of standard Sudan. Uh, so yeah, about a month later or so, I kind of packed up all my stuff and put everything into 25 kilograms because that's exactly how much you get <laughs> on the plane wow. Uh, wow. for internal flights in South Sudan and moved there for, it's meant to be a year. Um, and uh, yeah, so that kind of started my my life in the NGO circuit in the uh, non-governmental organization sphere. That's crazy. Um, and, and so what were you doing specifically in South Sudan? So I was a health supervisor. So um, I wasn't in the capital, uh, the capital being Juba, um, which uh, has a lot of violence. Um, it's it's a very militarized place. So I was very happy not to be in the capital, even though that's where all the food was. Um, <laughs> I'm very hungry. Uh, no, I was two little tiny caravan airplanes, um, like the bush planes that you see up north. Yeah, uh, two little, uh, two four and a half hour flights or so up uh, on the border with the north of the, the north of Sudan. Uh, oh, wow. So I was running a network of about twenty five clinics up there. Um, so these were run by uh, South Sudanese, um, but we as the NGO supported them with drugs and training and um, uh, kind of like data management and hiring and uh, yeah so my days were basically bouncing around in the back of a white land cruiser on terrible roads sometimes flooded out um, 
yeah, delivering drugs and uh, trying to collect reports and find out how many women we'd delivered that week. And uh, oh, yeah, wow. it was fascinating. It was really, really interesting. Um, but also like, completely exhausting. And I was so hungry all the time. Like we ate beans and rice three meals a day. Like, it was, wow. It was, oh my God. It was pretty tough. What was the... <laughs> What was the kind of, uh, I don't know, what was the consideration when you were offered that job um, for you to take it? Was it kind of like, sure, like both feet in, let's go? Or was it a lot of back and forth? It just seems so interesting to me that, I mean, to go to a country that you've never been to that, you know, is obviously completely different from where you're, where you are. I'm just wondering how that was to kind of make that decision. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think I probably did agonize about it a fair bit. Um, I didn't have a lot of other offers. Like I could have always gone back to Canada. That would not have been a problem. Um, but I think it was a chance for an adventure. I And I kind of told myself and my poor mother that it was only going to be a year. <laughs> yeah. Um, she was like, okay, one year. And then you come back to Canada, right? I was like, yeah, yeah, I promise. Ten years later, I'm still like living abroad. Um, but yeah, I thought it would be fun. Uh, I thought it would be different. Um, I don't know what I expected. I think what I expected was not what I got. Uh, right. I did not expect to be living in a tent for the whole time I was there. I ended up only spending eight months uh, for a variety of reasons, but I didn't expect to be living in a tent. I didn't wow. expect that there would be like black mamba snakes every now and oh again on our God. compound. Um, I didn't expect that the beautiful little garden that I planted with like tomatoes and basil plants. And I was like, so excited to eat because I was so hungry all the time that one of the goats that we were going to have for dinner would come and eat all of my vegetable <laughs> garden. <laughs> it's okay. I ate the goats. Fine. I got my food. Back. I was going to say, <laughs> <we're> gonna <laughs> um, I didn't expect, I mean, South Sudan doesn't have, um, electricity. So once our generator and our compound went out, it was probably 50 miles to the next generator. Um, what? Like the entire country has no electricity? No. I mean, Juba, this the capital city, sometimes will have power. Um, and it's amazing because South Sudan is an oil generating state, um, but the oil fields are in a very conflict-affected part of the country. Uh, and the oil is contested between the north of the country and the south of the country. So wow it's very complex yeah so but you know the amazing thing is when your generator goes off in the middle of nowhere you'll never see a bigger sky like i i didn't yeah. know there yeah. were that many stars out there <laughs> until i went um that's some of that silver lining that you can kind of look back on right is that yeah, it was so yeah, no power, but you, yeah you saw the sky yeah it was one of the most beautiful and difficult places i've ever been but really really interesting did you feel safe there or was there a lot of fear um, you know, while you were staying there? I felt safe. Um, yeah. I mean, we can talk about Congo where it was the opposite. Um, like yeah. South Sudan was very, very much, uh, it, it was in the honeymoon phase. Like when I was there in 2012, it had been a country for a couple of years. It was reasonably politically stable at the time um, I mean I'm not an expert in, in politics but you know things were reasonably stable there was tribal violence but there wasn't sort of active war um, right. unfortunately 
in 2013 things got really really bad and um it's it basically has gone into civil war and it's had occasional ceasefires and things seem to have calmed down a bit now but we'll have to see how long that lasts um, wow. but no i felt quite safe when i was there it's another reason i liked being out of the capital city like the capital city you would have like kind of army men in trucks with really big guns driving around everywhere and you wow. would have curfews at 8 p.m in the field I mean, there's nowhere to go, so you're not going to go out. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, it was, we had a little bar right beside our compound where you could sit under the tree and have a lukewarm beer. And <laughs> yeah, it was lovely. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, so sorry, you were, did you say that you were delivering babies and things like that out there? Uh, I wasn't. No, um, I would have loved to, but I'm not a midwife. So I wasn't. I had it, we had a team that did that. Um, but I did training with traditional birth attendants. So these are women who um, maybe don't have the kind of qualifications that we would ask for in a more Western setting, um, but they are spectacular at what they do. They're really good at delivering babies. Um, uh-huh. And they're just, they're so trusted by the local community. I mean, if I was a woman um, in that environment, I would ask for I would definitely ask for one of the traditional birth attendants to be present because they know what to do. They're really good at it. Um, so I worked with a lot yeah. of them kind of helping to upskill them on oh, sort of infection yeah, prevention and control and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's very fun. Yeah. Wonderful people. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the work that I ended up doing out there also was nutrition. So I think, uh, I mean, it's, it's funny because when you train as a, as a nurse and then as a public health person, uh, practitioner, um, you tend to think of health sometimes quite narrowly. And it was being out in South Sudan that helped me understand how broad public health really is and how it ha- you have to have kind of the clean water and the good sanitation and the really good nutrition to have kind of a more holistic view of health. I found uh-huh. that really helpful. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so I spent a lot of time uh, working on nutrition programs um, and there's a high rate of malnutrition among um, the population I was working with. So it was doing... Uh, um, kind of supplemental feeding programs for kids uh, and for their parents it's just amazing to watch these little kids like they just bounce back it's so cool they'd come in so floppy and just really really not engaged and after like a week in the feeding center they're sitting up and they're looking at you and they're interacting and it's a miracle it's really cool to watch their eyes are brighter and everything where is their main source of food coming from um so people are farmers uh, well, the women tend to be farmers, um, but uh, it, it's very much kind of a herding, herding society. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're kind of you're growing what you can grow. It's it's very fertile land, um, but unfortunately, because of the tribal violence, people have to move a lot. So right. you don't necessarily want to invest a huge amount of time in a garden that you might not be there for the harvest for. Right. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it, unfortunately, is food aid. So people kind of get, you know, their, their food supplements from, from the UN or whoever it might be. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's nutritionally sound, but it's not the most exciting food in the world as you can well imagine. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, have you ever eaten beans and rice since being back? Yeah, I have, but like, yeah. you know, with flavor. <laughs> right. <laughs> I had spices. <laughs> um, but I think it probably took me a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird though. When you come back from place somewhere like South Sudan, 
uh, like I came back to visit a friend, um, came back to London and she's like, let's go to the grocery store. You've been complaining about being hungry for like four months. <laughs> I went to the grocery store and I practically had a panic attack. No, was, like there are too many things here. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering about that because, uh, I mean, on a completely different scale, I lived on an acreage for a while and we always had a hard time getting like having a consistent amount of water and ice. Oh, and then when we moved uh, to town, it was like we had a, a fridge with an ice maker and water. And I'm like, this is amazing. And you kind of forget like the things that you sacrificed. So yeah, it was probably a lot like, I mean, again, it's on a way smaller scale. But for you, it was probably like coming back to running water and electricity and, you know, yeah, it's probably really strange because you kind of get used to your environment, right? And then, you totally um, do. yeah, and then it changes. It's overwhelming. Like to arrive, and all of a sudden, she was like, "Well, you, you what kind of fruit do you want?" I was like, "I, I, I can't. There, there's like a hundred different kinds." She's like, "Yeah, pick what you want." Um, and I was like, I can't, "I can't do it." Like I, I had like an actual crisis of being unable to make a decision, and I was like, "Just give me your keys. I'll go back to your place. You get what you think is useful, and we'll eat it on when we get home." Wow. Um, yeah. I mean, I, that after the first time, that was better. But yeah, it was a really strange kind of reverse culture shock that I didn't expect. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you had talked a little bit with me about um, working with the Ebola crisis in some, in a few different countries. Hmm. So how, like, how did, how'd you get there? Um, well, so I, I think I'd always been interested in infectious disease outbreaks, but I had never really had a chance to be involved in one. Um, but in 2014, kind of summer of 2014, um, when the West African Ebola crisis, which started kind of officially, it started at the very end of 2013, but it didn't really ramp up until around kind of March, April of 2014. Um, my NGO had a program in one of the most affected countries. And in June, July, I think, uh, when things were starting to get bad, um, I got a phone call from uh, one of my colleagues who worked in that country program. And she said, um, Jillian, like, can you come and help us out for a couple of weeks? We need somebody who's got a medical kind of health background to uh, assess if our, if our programming that we're doing is safe um, oh, for wow. our staff. Um, because, you know, the, the cases are getting higher and we, we just don't really have anybody to take a look at that staff health side. Uh, so I said, yeah, yeah, no problem. So I flew out um, in the 1st of August. Um, and I was amazed I even got on a plane because they canceled all the, like they declared a state of emergency on, I want to say the 31st of July or maybe the 1st of August, something like that. Um, and the all the flights for like three days got canceled. So there was no way of getting into Sierra Leone. Wow. Um, but I managed to get on a flight via Brussels Um Kind of, and I was, I think there was four people on the plane flying down like this massive jet um, with absolutely nobody on it. That um, must have been real, like it's just a whole other level of surreal. Or like, I probably shouldn't be going here. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit like, it was like, is this like the rats fleeing a sinking ship? Like what is happening here? Like, am I going the wrong way? Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh I mean, also, like, I mean, it wasn't the first time that I decided to kind of go into a conflict zone. So I was like, okay, it's a bit like that. Um, yeah. But yeah, so then I arrived in Freetown um, and I was meant to stay for two weeks. I ended up staying for like, I think almost eight months in the end. Wow. Um, a bit 
by accident. Um, everything just kind of happened all at once and it just got really, really crazy. Um, but yeah, so I went over first to kind of assess the health programming um, that the program was doing. And I was like, okay, yeah, this, we cannot continue doing the work we're doing because um, we had teams of, um, of staff who would go in and find uh, children who'd been orphaned or abandoned uh, working kind of the child protection space. But a lot of these kids in an Ebola crisis, the reason that their parents weren't there is because they were sick (laughs) Um, and possibly in an Ebola treatment center. So it wasn't safe for our staff to be going into these homes, finding these children, picking them up um, and taking them to um, a shelter. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Because your risk, your risk infecting other people. So hot. The risk of infecting the staff member, that child is probably a very high risk contact. if their parent is ill and then where are you going to take those kids right like they can't go into a normal uh, i gotta hate the term like orphanage because they're potentially going to infect a bunch of other kids um so we really had to kind of scale down our programming and really think through what we could do safely um yeah it was a very odd time uh because i like i'd worked in crisis scenarios before and in a crisis there's always like this cavalry who come from mm-hmm. all over the world and they're there and everybody's in these big meetings and we're all having these really animated discussions. But in August, September of 2014, it was like a ghost town. Like a lot of the organizations had pulled out. Everybody was kind of sheltering. It's a bit like what we're seeing now wow. with the pandemic. Um, and it, it did ramp up after a while, but it was just so, it was eerily quiet when you just knew that like we were having 50 new cases sometimes a day. Wow. Yeah. Um, this is a disease that at the time probably had a 60% mortality. Wow. Um, and sorry, I don't know enough about Ebola, but did it affect children like it did adults as well? Would, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Unfortunately, it really did. Yeah. Um, so kids under five were really affected. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Um, so when I ran at, at one point, I, um, opened an Ebola treatment center with funding from the UK government and with my NGO and with a bunch of support from healthcare workers uh, from all over Africa, as well as from the, from Europe. Um, and it was really tough because we ended up taking in a lot of children uh, who were confirmed Ebola cases and very few of them, if any lived. Um, oh and was it spread the same really way hard. that, these are like is it all like respiratory so ebola is actually sounds weird to say ebola is easier because it's not respiratory um Mm. to catch ebola you you have to be very very close to somebody physically so we often will call it a disease of love because it's a disease that you get from caring for somebody who's sick or honoring somebody who's died by like holding their hand Um, but a person who's died of Ebola, unfortunately, their body has got a lot of virus um, that's kind of on the skin. Yeah. So it's very easy to catch it. Um, so, yeah, it, it spreads in families like wildfire. Um, it spreads at funerals very, very quickly. But it's not like COVID yeah. in that if you're not, uh, if you're, you don't get it from being in the same room, not touching somebody for 15 right that's really interesting that ebola is spread so differently than 
and oh, I guess it's not that interesting that spread so differently. It just, I didn't really know that much about Ebola. Well, I mean, why, why would yeah, you? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I remember seeing it on the news and being like, wow, that's so like crazy because it was yeah. considered an epidemic, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. Because it was multiple right. countries. Yeah. Um, and as opposed to a pandemic that's multiple continents, right. really. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, Ebola, it's, you, you don't get Ebola in countries with strong health systems. It's something that really attacks a system that is often in a post-conflict country or um, somewhere that struggles. And is that just because, <laughs> um, like, is it education? Is it access to, like, information and clean water? Um, so it's a zoonosis. Uh, so it's um, it's spread probably from a bat to a okay. human, possibly via another animal like um, a deer or possibly I think believe chimpanzees. Yeah. Um, so it hops across the species barrier usually once in an outbreak, um, but the way that it spreads is as I said kind of through human to human contact. But where you tend to get big kind of spreading events is in hospitals um, because there's often very limited water, limited personal protective equipment, uh, limited infection prevention and control measures. Um, So it's often how you know that you've got an Ebola outbreak is your healthcare staff start to die or get very sick. Um, And that's how you know that it's that and not something else because Ebola does in the early stages looked very similar to a lot of other diseases like malaria, like um, even the flu. Yeah. Um, It's a fever, it's aches, it's pains, it's fatigue. Um, It's, uh, it's not, it's not what you see in the, in the kind of sensationalized um, TV shows where people are bleeding out their (laughs) eyes. Like that doesn't really happen. Yeah. Yeah. The hemorrhagic symptoms are incredibly rare. And so was there ever a risk that Ebola would go from an epidemic to a pandemic? People were scared. Yeah. Um, And this is cynical of me, but I think that's why the world paid so much attention. Right. Uh, It's because they were scared it was going to come, you know, it's only six hours to fly from West Africa to London. Wow. (laughs) Not that far. Um, So, I mean... Yes, you could say it could do. Um, there were cases in Europe. There was a case in Spain. There was um, a couple of cases that were evacuated and came to the UK. There was actually some transmission in the US. Um, two nurses got sick after caring for a man who had uh, come from Liberia in the States. Mm-hmm. So sure, I mean, it was possible. But as I said, I mean, a, a country that's got a strong health system that can do good surveillance uh, that has decent infection prevention control that has a well-trained workforce or st- uh, health workforce is unlikely to have a serious ca- uh, outbreak of Ebola right because it is it is quite easy to tamp down with good um, with good out- outbreak outbreak response activities these are not complicated activities uh, to do right. um, which is what I find quite frustrating about this outbreak is that we've, or this pandemic is that uh, we seem to have forgotten that 
there are really very tried and true and tested ways of combating really big outbreaks that don't necessarily involve fancy phone apps that work really right. well. And we haven't really done those. And so, yeah, like, so moving into sort of our current pandemic of COVID-19, um, when, so I know like you don't, like you didn't specifically like train to work in this specific pandemic, but when did you sort of start to hear either through the health community or um, through your connections? When did you start to hear about COVID-19? Probably in the first week of January, I would say. Oh, wow. So pretty early yeah. on. Um, but, you know, my Twitter feed is nothing but outbreak nerds <laughs> like me. So <laughs> um, it's it was pretty hard for me not to not to see it um and at first it was just a little kind of trickle and then it became a bit of a stream and then a river and then all of a sudden it was an ocean right and were people sort of Um, predicting this like where we are today or was there more of a sense of I don't know like stopping it before it became this bad I don't think that we really saw it, but I, the people that I know personally, I don't think we saw it getting this bad this quickly. I mean, I think there are a few people who were really good and really caught it early, like Helen Branswell, who's a, a journalist for um, Staff. Okay. She's an amazing um, outbreaks journalist. She said something, I think it was like the one of the early weeks of January, she said, this could be bad. And at first I read that, I was like, yeah, no, you're right. It could be, but it probably right. Be. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, like SARS happened some years back. And yes, there was cases around the world, but it was tamped down really quite quickly. And um, so can you, do you I know, think most of us thought it would be like, yeah. That. <laughs> and why yeah. is that? Like why, you know, so many people are saying like, like, oh, everybody's overreacting. Like, we got through SARS. We got through, you know, like, all these other these other things. So what makes this so much worse? That's a great question. Um, I mean, I'm not a SARS expert. Uh, but what I can say is that, you know, they, they call it the, no- the novel coronavirus for a reason. Novel meaning new. Mm-hmm. Nobody is immune to this. Right. <laughs> Unlike the flu where you can be vaccinated or people kind of might have a little bit of residual immunity from previous flus that they've had, nobody's got any immunity to this one. The entire population of the world could catch it. Mm-hmm. Um, also, we like, this isn't, I, I didn't realize this really until I went to a meeting in January, maybe the first week of February, where we were, you know, China had just kind of put, I think, like 60 million people in quarantine wow. um, for for COVID. And I think a lot of us were like, yeah, nobody else is going to be able to do that. No other country will tolerate yeah. that. Um, yeah. But like, so that happened. And where was I going with that? Yeah, they, I mean, they put this this many people in quarantine. And we were talking in the room. We were like, yeah, but, you know, for SARS, it, was, it wasn't such a big deal. And they didn't need to do so much uh, kind of clamping down on the population and we had an amazing uh, Chinese scholar on the phone and he was saying I don't think you guys realize what a different world we live in than when SARS happened which was like 
uh, not quite 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. He's like, the Chinese cities are megalopolises at this stage. Right. It used to be a much more rural place. People, mm-hmm. you know, they've industrialized the entire country. There's bullet trains that go everywhere. Um, a lot of these cities, like Wuhan, was barely a city 20 years ago. Yeah. And now it's a city of, you know, 15 or something million people. I'm probably way off, probably off by order of magnitude <laughs> on that. Um, it, it's like, this is a very, very different world. Mm-hmm. There's so many more direct flights. This is going to be a very different thing. And I think all of us in this room kind of went, oh, crap. Yeah. So was <laughs> that the turning point where you're like, oh, maybe it is going to be this bad for me? Yeah. 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 So I think that might have been like the last week of January. And so, and I, that's when I had my moment. So, what yeah. was that like then? Because, yeah. like, England is sort of being, um, like, touted as like this like country that didn't react fast enough and is paying the price. Um, so, what was it like living then in a country that was reacting so slowly, knowing what you knew? Such a great question. You know, I like I I think I knew it was going to be a problem. <laughs> I thought it, I knew it was going to hit Asia. Yeah. I was pretty sure we were going to have cases in Canada and the States and probably some cases in Europe, but I don't, I, I, I did not expect that three months later I would be sitting in my flat having barely left in the last eight yeah. weeks. <laughs> yeah. I didn't see that coming <laughs> at all. Um, I kind of thought, okay, well, if we have this outbreak, Sure, we're going to still be able to live our lives, but there's going to be a population of people who are more susceptible and we're going to have to find ways of keeping them right. safe. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also necessarily didn't have as much information about asymptomatic transmission mm-hmm. at that stage. Um, mm-hmm. We didn't know just how easy it was to catch um, and how many people would be affected. We didn't know enough about the case fatality ratio. Um I think, you know, the learning on this has just been so steep. So it wasn't really until probably like when things really started to go sideways in Italy um, that I started looking around here in the UK and went, hang on a second. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are not ready and we don't seem to be getting ready. Yeah. Like, we had weeks yeah. to prepare. We had a national stockpile of personal protective equipment that didn't have body bags in it. Oh, wow. Like, these are, this is not rocket science. (laughs) Like, like, we we had some time to get this one sorted out, and this is coming. Um, Like, did you just want to go knock on Boris Johnson's door and be like, hello, sir, like, you need to pay attention? Oh, goodness. You know, I probably did. (laughs) I I probably really did want that. but then, you know, as, as I get it, like, but, you know, I was eight weeks pregnant at that stage and I wasn't going outside by that point. So, um, yeah, I mean, that put a whole different spin on it. I think, I think my ability to, to kind of do the, the on the ground advocacy and pushing and as much as I normally would do in an epidemic was very much changed by my personal circumstances. Yeah. And I can imagine having that knowledge and that information and that experience with uh, outbreaks and then seeing how different the countries are handling it and kind of just wanting to scream about like, this is what we should be doing. 
and then maybe getting reactions from people like you know okay like that's a little overboard take off your tinfoil hat kind of thing right like that would feel so frustrating that people are not you know taking it seriously when you know what this could lead to yeah yeah it's it's weird like I I look back on it and I I probably did feel like a crazy person shouting into a void a little bit Mm. um but also you know if I'm shouting on Twitter with a bunch of outbreaks, people were all shouting the same thing. So I'm like, Oh no, everybody's we're all on the same yeah. page. Everybody knows what this is like. Like you get in your echo chamber. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but then kind of not really realizing, I think how unprepared the UK was. Like, I think that's all come out um, since the outbreak really hit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, nobody cares about pandemic preparedness until you have to. Yeah. Like until you're <laughs> then it's a bit late. <laughs> And do you think this was, this should have been more predictable, this one? Like, we should have been able to predict it more accurately? I mean, I suppose we never, we've had pandemic flu um, kind of preparedness Mm -hmm. for a long time, knowing that there was going to be a big one, like the Spanish flu. Um, I mean, the Spanish flu being a bit special because it attacked young people. Oh, okay. Which is quite unusual. Usually flu attacks the young and the old. And Spanish mm-hmm. flu attacked um, kind of, you know, people in their late teens, 20s, 30s. Um, so that was an, an unusual strain of flu. Um, I think we thought about it with swine flu. We thought about it with H1N1. Like there's been some kind of like little testers yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. over the last 10 years after SARS. Um, but I mean... You know, coronavirus is normally just like there's a bunch of them that circulate in the world, right? right? And they just cause a yeah. <laughs> they don't cause anything else. Um, so I don't know that anybody was like, "Oh, it's totally going to be a coronavirus," right? Like they didn't know this was yeah. Um, yeah. Have you guys seen the movie Pandemic, or not? Sorry, Pandemic. Uh, Contagion. Yes, I watched it because of all this, and it was <laughs> yeah. it was just like watching it's pretty much the same. Yeah, thing. it's really spooky. <laughs> Super it's spooky. funny she watched it because of this thing and I purposely didn't watch it because of this thing. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's worth watching because <laughs> it's it's a bat virus that goes through uh, an animal host. In, in the movie, it's a pig. In uh, coronavirus, it could well be a pangolin, which is a really endangered uh, sort of like a scaly anteater, although we're not 100% sure about that. But it's mm. probably still derived oh from a bat. Oh my God, they're so cute. Um, they're so yeah. cute. So <laughs> i know i saw it and i was like no this can't be true this thing is too cute i kind of hope okay this sounds weird i kind of hope it is them because then maybe they won't be hunted yeah oh that's true oh, okay. yeah good point <laughs> yeah um although they could then be hunted because people are afraid that they're going to spread corona i don't know it's a bit of both maybe. we'll get a wildlife um, expert anything to save the time yeah. <laughs> um but uh yeah i mean it, it's it's a bit textbook from that movie i mean like in the movie the uh case fatality rate is significantly right. higher um and and I, and the kind of vaccination ending bit where everything goes back to normal really quickly is a little bit ludicrous. yeah it was just like <laughs> oh okay now here's the vaccine but yeah. i heard like i've heard that the the fastest vaccine ever was like measles or mumps or something and it was developed in four years and so that's a great point. I have and no so idea. people, I can't remember um, where I heard that. Um, and so I'm hearing people be like, oh, it's 18 months away. I'm like, I don't know, guys. Like, 
that's like, you know, half as fat, like twice as fast as current record holder vaccine development, um, which was like in the 50s or something. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what we have going for us now is that there is a global arms race to develop a vaccine. Right. Yes. So that's a yeah. good thing. <laughs> um, and, you know, they're already on kind of, they've got a lot of, normally vaccines take ages to develop because so you've got like phase one, phase two, phase, and et yeah. cetera. Um, mm. But they've kind of managed to speed up a lot of that because of the scenario and the situation that we're in. Um, mm-hmm. The reality is even if you can develop a vaccine in 18 months, you know, there's how many, 9 billion people on the mm. planet? Every single one of them needs this vaccine yeah. who's not been infected before. Yeah. So even rolling it out, like, and to think about like low-income countries, they're not necessarily going to be on the front front of the list, you know? Yeah, because it will, Absolutely. like, it's a money thing, right? It's a money thing. It's an access yeah. thing. It's, you know, a country like Congo, where I spent most of last year, has a huge war going on a lot of the time. How do you get out and vaccinate people in that country? Yeah, like, hey, guys, don't shoot. Like, we're just trying to vaccinate. Yeah. Exactly. Um, do you think? I mean, you can do it. It's yeah, like yeah, it's quite. I can imagine the logistics are daunting to say the least. Um, do you think there's going to be a second wave? Like with the Spanish flu, the second wave ended up being worse than the initial outbreak, which is what we're currently in. It's tough to say. Um, I mean, everybody's worried about the second wave hitting in the fall because that's when we'll also have normal flu. Right. But I choose to believe, maybe, and I could be completely wrong, but I choose to believe that a lot of the good behaviors that we've put in place in this, nobody wants to go back to lockdown again. So what we have to do is we have to maintain some level of social distance, whether that's leaving a seat between us on the bus, people working Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday, um, just sort of movie theaters only offering you know, kind of every other seat mm-hmm. or something like that. I, I choose to believe if we if we can reopen under those kind of circumstances, that that will reduce not only our risk of corona, but also of flu. Right, yeah. Because that's, mm-hmm. they're spread the same way. Yeah. And if we keep washing our hands and practicing good respiratory hygiene, so don't, you know, cough all over <laughs> other people, um, these are good things. And I mean, we saw it in, we saw it in Sierra Leone. So Sierra Leone has endemic cholera. Like every year there's a cholera outbreak. The year of Ebola, there was no cholera outbreak because everybody was washing their hands like crazy. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's... So I I want to be optimistic. Yeah, that's really yeah, that's really interesting. So maybe the R flu season, season won't be quite so bad because we're doing all of this stuff to protect against the other thing. Yeah, I mean, we, we can't probably maintain this level of lockdown. But if we can come back and people remember and don't want to go back, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that would be good. And you know, this is a good thing in general. No, like, it'd be nice not to get a cold twice a year. I mean, honestly, <laughs> I'm like, I'm really enjoying like having this time off and being able to, you know, like spend time at home and working on projects. And, um, you know, I think in Canada we're quite fortunate with like the government support we're getting, but, um. Yeah, I think it's been quite nice. Um, I, I'm curious. I see a lot of um, divide online about people being frustrated about the numbers not being correct, like the projected numbers not being correct um, about who was going to 
catch it and, and things like that. Is that because the social distancing and the quarantining is working? Um, because what I, I, I'm frustrated by it because people are saying, well, you know, this amount of people were supposed to catch it and this and, and that hasn't happened. And it's like, OK, well, is that, you know, is it because we've been told to stay home and stay away from each other? You know, I don't think that people are really understanding the connection and that they're getting frustrated that why are we being quarantined and why are we staying inside if this isn't as bad as people have said it's going to be. You know what I mean? Like a hundred percent. I mean, I think you you hit the nail on the hit the is it nail hammer on the nail, nail, nail on the head? head. Yeah. Nail on the head. <laughs> You've hit the nail on the head with the the absolute kind of biggest frustration working in public health is that if you do your job right nobody notices right yes <laughs> um like nobody notices how many people don't get sick people mm-hmm. notice how many do and those models like the the uh, mathematical projections that are done by smarter people than me mm-hmm. um using the available data that they have and that's updated constantly the thing is those are they tell you what would happen if not if nobody changed behavior initially Um, and then as people start to change behavior as we have better data about okay how many people say did like before lockdown I went to work I went to the cafe I went to the pub in the evening I probably was within a meter of maybe a hundred people in a day Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, now I'm within a meter of one person my husband (laughs) um like that's it so you know a a decrease of that you can't you know uh, I mean you can't model that until you actually see that people are changing behavior and until you have some data about how well they're changing their behavior yeah um and then you know we can redo the models and we're like okay it's getting better uh but then you release the lockdown and people have you know 25 contacts. Oh, okay. Well, we've got to redo this and think again about mm. what the projections might look like. Do you um, guys have people so, protesting in England? I don't think so. I I mean, I haven't seen it on the news. I mean, you know, it's so weird. Like I, if it's not happening outside my yeah. front door, I wouldn't know <laughs> unless I see it on the, on the yeah. news or on Twitter. Uh, but no, I don't think so. Uh, I think people overall are a bit more trusting and have a bit more faith in the government and the health mm-hmm. service than they do in some countries that shall not be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and people are frustrated. They want to go back to work. They want to get their lives back yeah. on track. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, frustration because we don't know um, how this is going to affect things long-term yet. We don't know how this is going to affect um, the economy and people's mental health and uh, people's jobs and things like that, right? And uh-huh. I think that there's a lot of uh, frustration with people who have lost their jobs or they um, are maybe stuck quarantining with someone who is abusive, mm-hmm. things like that. I mean, there are definitely real, real problems uh, with this situation. Um, but like you were saying, you know, once we're out of quarantine, uh, people are going to think that it was for nothing, you know, and that's, what's frustrating is that you're staying inside to keep yourself safe and to keep others safe and it's working. Um, but people are seeing it working, but thinking that it's unnecessary that we're quarantined. It's such a weird 
kind of, yeah, it's just a weird situation because people are going to come out of this being frustrated that it even happened in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, it's tough because it, the, the best thing you can do is nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I think that's harder to accept than if we were to say, you know, if, if it was war footing and it was like, okay, you need to dig for victory, you know, plant your vegetable garden. We need you to be assembling warplanes yeah. at the factory. Like if you're active, if you're doing something, if you feel like you're contributing to the effort, I mm-hmm. think it feels more real. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. this is harder because unless you've got a family member or friend who's directly affected, it all it feels like is your liberties have been taken away. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And and you just want to get back to your normal life. Well, and speaking of yeah. getting back but, to normal life, you had said that you had sort of um, you were in the DRC last year in Sierra Leone. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, DRC. Okay, last and then year. you yeah. came back and you were like, okay, like I'm gonna get back to a different part of my life and do my doctorate and you know really like hunker down and get some things done academically and and then this happened and your colleagues were like hey Jillian (laughs) what you doing yeah Yeah. (laughs) and what was that like like you you know you had sort of said like okay we're gonna start a family I'm gonna work on my doctorate um you know and and then I guess the question is like what was that like and what are you doing now? Um, sort of what are you playing uh, in this pandemic? Yeah, fair question. Yeah. Um, yeah. As, as you said, I came back with the intention um, of traveling, not traveling. So, Hey, yeah. that's worked. <laughs> I have definitely not traveled. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, kind of coming back, uh, my husband and I uh, want to start a family and we had, we have um, some fertility challenges. So we've been going through IVF. Um, and have a 14 week old fetus Yay. now. So hopefully that sticks Yay. around oh, that's so good. <laughs> over that first, first trimester. Bone. <laughs> yeah, come on, you can do it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so that first kind of January, February, um, or well, more February really, uh, when this was really ramping up and everybody was like, okay, so Jillian, so how are you getting involved and what are you doing? I'm like, guys, I've got my head in a toilet puking most of the day. Like, there's very little that I can do for you right now. Um, and and I felt really quite guilty about that because I do have a fairly kind of specialized skill set. So I really did want to be involved, but I was so tired. God, I had no idea how tiring pregnancy Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so I um, But I started helping out by doing kind of some pro bono work, helping organizations, especially... Um, sexual reproductive health organizations who do work in low and middle income countries, helping them think through how they could continue to provide service uh, in the middle of a COVID outbreak. So how do you make sure that women can still have somewhere to deliver their babies? How do you make sure that teenage girls who are now out of school because of Mm -hmm. COVID, how do you help them not get pregnant if they don't want to so that they can finish school when this is all over? Um, and that was, I mean, it's been tough and a lot of organizations have really struggled because their staff are scared. Um, and you know, women and and men and people are afraid to go to the clinics because they think they're going to get contaminated if they do. Um, and we're sort of seeing not dissimilar things in the UK. People have stopped going to the hospital for normal things. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the rates of people going in with heart 
uh, with chest pain are way down. Oh, that's so scary. Is that people are dying yeah. at home? Yeah. Like, we don't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and now I um, now that I'm feeling much better, God, like this, like kind of eleven weeks rolled around, and I started feeling amazing. Again. <laughs> <laughs> um, delighted. Um, I am working uh, quite a lot, trying to uh, get cash to local NGOs in six countries in sub-Saharan Africa to run COVID programming. Um, normally, what we would do in a lot of countries is we would send people to do like technical support and advisory in countries that are facing a, an epidemic of disease yeah. like I did for Ebola. Yeah, there's no planes right now. Um, and <laughs> mm-hmm. if you are a healthcare worker, you are needed at yeah. home. So it is not possible to send armies of healthcare workers to go and help countries that are struggling. Everybody's right. kind of on their own. So we are a bunch of us um, in various NGOs are doing remote technical advice to countries and trying to get some cash down there so that they can kind of run their own response as much as possible. Wow, that's yeah. But I mean, what it important work? It really makes you think about the the countries though that obviously do not have the technology, the resources that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how, how are they handling this if they don't have the um, you know, personal protection equipment, they don't have the ICU equipment and things like that. And I mean, that's a really scary thought. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's really scary. Um, I mean, in some ways, Africa got off a little light at the beginning because mm. there are just less flights right. um, between kind of major cities. So they kind of knew where it would probably start. They figured it would probably start in South Africa because Johannesburg is a really big major airport. They figured it would probably happen in Nigeria because there's a huge number of flights between places like Nigeria and Ethiopia and China. Right. Um, so they kind of were able to sort of pre-prepare a little bit. But the thing is, once it gets into the community, it's really hard to stop. Yeah. And mm-hmm. what do we talk like? What are our prevention me- mechanisms in the West? wash your hands, stay home. Um, is that an option when you don't have running water, when you've got 10 people living in one room in yeah. a low kind of in a, in a settlement, in a very small informal yeah. settlement? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the mechanisms that we use here are probably not feasible <laughs> or the recommendations. Mm-hmm. So it's about kind of trying to identify local solutions to some of these problems. Um, and it's tough and I, I get concerned that because we're all so worried about COVID that we're forgetting that in low and middle income countries, people are still dying of measles Yeah, and wow. you know, yeah. they stopped doing polio vaccination campaigns now because of COVID and, mm. you know, malnutrition is still a major problem and women still die in childbirth Yeah, and those things don't get better in the middle of an outbreak, but they do become less important right. to the rest of yeah. the world. <laughs> what really makes you, uh, hopefully that makes some people put some things into perspective. I mean, we're being asked to stay home where we have, and I mean, obviously it's not as simple as that and it's not a great situation for everybody, but we have running water and we have, you know, food delivery and we have um, roofs of our heads. And you know, you think about the homeless population, you think about these people in other countries that literally don't have any of that. And now they have an outbreak on top of that. And like you're saying, they don't have the support of the other things that are 
still affecting them that aren't affecting us in this country. I mean, that's a really interesting and important way to look at things right now, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, it's, it's, it's tough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we're, yeah. and you know, even if we manage to kind of get COVID out of countries in the North, as it were, if it's still happening in the South, it's going to come back. So it's like, we really, we can't, we can't be nationalistic about this disease. Yeah. It's a global problem. Yeah. It's not just, <laughs> it's a global mm-hmm. problem. Yeah. And if we get all protectionist and say, this is my personal protective equipment and you can't have any, yeah. Okay, well, you might have it today, but you're still going to need it in three years yeah. if yeah. you don't share. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that must be hard for you to kind of, you are on, you have been to these countries. You can literally see uh, what they're facing. And then to kind of be, I don't know. I, I mean, the social media thing is such a is such a difficult thing to see people kind of bickering back and forth, and and this theory and that theory, and this isn't real and that isn't real. And I just couldn't imagine kind of being in in your profession and being like, ugh, like every day shaking <laughs> your head at the some of the absurdity that you're seeing, especially when you can kind of uh, know what these other countries are suffering with. On top of it all, I mean, I just it's frustrating as a normal person who has no sort of education but like I I already think people are idiots I can't even imagine like what you and your colleagues see at you know like (laughs) yeah yeah I I I don't know what to say to that beyond I think it's it's complicated it's you know sometimes it's it it's nice to kind of disappear into magical thinking right that it's all just going to disappear one day and that there's going to be a magic vaccine or that if you inject bleach oh, up your nose, Lord. it's going to make it go yeah. away. <laughs> like, like, I mean, people want a miracle cure because this is not fun. Yeah. This is no. really hard. Yeah. And mm-hmm. isn't it nice to imagine that there's something that will just, or or that it wasn't real in the first place. We can all just go back to normal. Yeah. I don't know. Like I, I still have moments, less so the last few weeks, but like the first kind of four weeks I was in lockdown, I kind of was like I'm gonna wake up from this nightmare one of these mm-hmm. days. Like uh-huh. I mean, I'm I'm just in a really long dream. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know that I really kind of believed it was all happening. So I I sympathize I think with people who, um, wish that there was a a miracle that would come. Well, I think we're all kind of waiting for that day where we turn on the news and and they're you know they tell us that it's gone or that the vaccine is coming or you know, but obviously those things take time. Um, so I think when little things come out from, uh, world leaders, you know, that are not accurate, you know, people kind of are like, Oh, well, is it that simple? Like, why aren't we just doing that? And obviously this isn't as bad as we, we thought it was. Right. So I think people are kind of clinging onto things that are maybe not quite real. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, some of them are incredibly dangerous. We absolutely realized over the weekend with the number of calls to poison control centers after that individual said what he said. (laughs) It's unbelievable. But, you know, he's not really quite sure why people would would take his advice. (laughs) Because I'm not a doctor. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yes, you don't need to be a doctor to know that injecting bleach is a bad idea. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Um. I don't really have a great segue into this, but I wrote down from our first talk and I would love to just hear the story in as much detail as you'd like to give. Um, You were shot at while hiding in a bathtub. 
Oh yeah. That <laughs> <laughs> um, I just think it's such an interesting uh, okay, story, yeah. um, and again, really kind of puts things so, into perspective of where we are today. Yeah. Um, so I was in the Congo. I was in North Kivu, uh, which is a, a conflict-affected part of the country. It's been at war for about twenty years, um, and this was last year, so twenty nineteen. And I was there with the World Health Organization, uh, working, uh, fighting the outbreak of Ebola out there. And if if you ever want to have complexity in your life, try to do an Ebola outbreak in a war zone. Oh, wow. That's great fun. Mm-hmm. Um, complicated would be one of the words. Um, anyway, so the area that I was in, um, most of the time was fine. I mean, we knew that it was... Uh, there was a lot of rebel movement. There's like 150 something rebel groups in, in the kind of province. It's, it's a very complex environment with a lot of kind of different power factions and it's incredibly rich minerally. So there's a lot of fighting over um, logging and minerals and, and stuff like that. And unfortunately quite a lot of uh, indiscriminate killing of civilians. As yeah. Well. But everything had kind of been okay and things were relatively calm. But then one morning at about half five, I think, um, I woke up and you're usually <coughs> up pretty early because you go to bed at about eight because it's nothing yeah. else to do. Um, and I heard like all this kind of like pop, 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 pop. I was like, that's not great. I don't yeah. Um, <laughs> and then you're like, no, 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 it's not a real thing. It's just a car backfiring yeah. or something. And then it keeps going. You're like, no, 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 that's definitely gunfire. Oh uh, and that's machine gunfire oh as well, which is... Uh, not great so I like and like the, it's the safest place um in when there's gunfire kind of very close to your house or hotel uh the face, safest place to be is usually in the bathtub because usually bathrooms don't have a window or if they do it's a small mm-hmm. one um and a bathtub is generally metal or porcelain so it gives you quite a bit of cover um so I grabbed my radio and I grabbed my phone and I tottered into the bathroom, lay down in the bathtub, went, oh, God, it's really cold. Went back and grabbed my blanket and came back. <laughs> um, and then I just like sat there, kind of lay there for about an hour while all this was happening. And like there was like piles of shooting and um, kind of uh, like light arms, um, kind of like uh, I don't actually know the word for it, but kind of like rocket propelled grenades, like RPG oh, fire. Wow. Um, not thank god directly at our yeah. <laughs> our hotel um and then that you could tell when the un came in and the ar- um and the army came in and the police came in to kind of fight back this this rebel group that had entered into the town and were looking to make trouble i never quite figured out exactly why they were there um and have chased them away uh but yeah i was just in this bathtub for about an hour going like is this how i got yeah go? like Ugh lying in the bathtub telling my husband like i love you everything's fine i'm being shot at but it's fine oh don't worry oh my god and did he reply like was he was it he was awake thank <laughs> god <laughs> um and yeah I, and then i i guess like oh god i should tell my parents that i love them but how do i do that without having them completely oh freak my out god. so oh i was my like gosh. Her mother would have been losing it like yeah. i told you yeah <laughs> yeah exactly so i think i went with like just to say, guys, love you very much. No, like, just oh, left it completely God. open. Just <laughs> for, for no reason at all. <laughs> no, 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 no reason at all. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Um, and then I started, but then after a while, I got a little bit bored in the, 
bathtub because you're just kind of waiting like and the radio is like stay down stay down shelter in place and you're like yeah okay i'm doing that like well at some point the adrenaline Um, has got to sort of like waver right yeah (laughs) it does um yeah and so i'm sitting in my bathtub with my phone i've kind of said i love you to the people that are important uh and i was like well play a game of scrabble or something (laughs) i guess gotta pass the time uh yeah it's super weird to think about in retrospect and at one point I like started kind of because I had been t- keeping a diary at the time so I was like tapping out an email to myself on my phone of like I'm still in this cold my feet are chilly I really would like to have a shower I'm hungry oh my god like, guns aren't stopping yeah <laughs> do you think yeah. I can get breakfast um yeah it's a very surreal moment so and then bizarre. at what point like how yeah. long after the gunfire stops are you like oh can I come out um, so I probably stopped for about 20 minutes, like, or kind of like slowly got further away. Like you could tell that they were being chased away. Um, yeah. and I got up, uh, kind of changed out of my pajamas and then somebody banged on the door. Um, cause we were a bunch of us were all living in the same compound. Um, and, uh, said, we're having a really quick staff meeting. It's like, yeah, (laughs) love to get an update on what's going on. Um, so yeah, it was probably about half an hour maybe after the shooting stopped that we all kind of met in the mess. Everybody's sitting there looking pale with unbrushed hair, um, and kind of shake. Well, I was shaking a bit, um, making myself a cup of tea and, uh, yeah. And that was kind of it. And then it was like, okay well that's over so now we're like oh we're gonna stay inside today like yeah you bet we are (laughs) and like did you not go out there run home i mean i was leaving within a few days anyway i think i my contract was up and so i was going to be gone i think within a week um so i i was pretty tired by that yeah so i was kind of ready to move on anyway um but you know i was with my team and I really liked the team I was with and I felt like we'd all been through this really for me quite traumatic experience um but I would prefer to be with people who'd been through it than not I think if I had hopped on a plane that day and flown home like who would I have told people don't uh understand these kind of stories you want to be around people who've been through similar things yeah yeah because um, you have to debrief with them and you have to kind of sit there over one two three four too many beers and be like that was a really rough day let's talk that one through well like because you had said like you know you you sort of have to survive with a bit of a dark sense of humor yeah because otherwise you know like you would just crumble yeah yeah and i yeah i would really I think it's a big part of working in a humanitarian space is that everybody becomes a little bit jaded and cynical and dark, but it's mm-hmm. how you survive um, because you've got to take humor in the moments where you can. Um, and uh, and I, I don't know what else to say beyond that. I think the, the friends that I've made working in this field are friends that I will forever have yeah. because when you're with somebody in the middle of a, like having a warm beer seven nights a week (laughs) because there's nowhere else to go. Um, And, and just talking about whatever happened that day, you, you develop amazing friendships and that, yeah, they, they're important. 
Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, um, it's something about being in, in that situation where you're kind of bonded for for life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you kind of, and like you end up making friends with people. You're like, I don't know that we would have been friends in the real world. But <laughs> yeah. we are friends here because you're the only person. Yeah. Here. But also because like we have something in common. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, well, that's, did, that's such an interesting life you've led so far. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, we'll see. It's going to change pretty dramatically now. Yeah. So, um, thank you so much for taking yeah. the time. It's very enjoyable. Um, to talk oh, with no, us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, congrats on your baby. That's so exciting. Thank you. Yeah. We're, um, yeah, it's, it's super exciting and absolutely terrifying all at the same time. We'll have to have you back <laughs> post baby to be like, you did not sign up for a baby during a pandemic <laughs> well there is that I mean this is what I work yeah. on eh? like I study the impact yeah. of of epidemics on reproductive health I never thought I would be living that you're just wow. doing your own, yeah like, it's thesis. just a whole yeah yeah it's it's yeah I'm living my thesis in some ways <laughs> and yeah it's like I'm going up to the clinic and I'm like, okay, so when am I going to get my next scan? They're like, well, we're probably not going to do it because we don't want to risk exposure. And I'm like, but I really want this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. As you can tell by the five children who've interrupted me oh throughout this entire thing, it's a really beautiful <laughs> thing to have children. <laughs> yes, and joy. And oh, again. my God. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I will let you guys both go. Um, but enjoy the rest of your night, your day. Yeah, thank you so much. Amazing. Well, thank you both. I really enjoyed our conversation. Awesome. Oh, Have good. a good night. Thank you. Thanks. Cool. Bye. Bye. Have a good one. Bye. <clears throat> Michelle, I can't believe we just talked to Jillian. Just talked to her. It feels like it was three weeks ago. <laughs> oh, won't, won't. We probably had some very witty no. banter about how great that episode was or interview was. And then I deleted it. I feel like we're like legit podcasters now because I think that that has happened to like every podcast that I've listened to where they've accidentally deleted like their entire episode and have had to do oh, it again. That so gives me I think that that's like a, I think that that's like a rite of passage. Okay, for a well, podcaster. then I'm into it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but she was like sincerely so lovely to chat with. Yes, she, and so knowledgeable. And yeah, she was really sweet, really nice, really smart. And crazy adventurous. I just couldn't imagine, like, getting that phone call and being like, okay. You know, a war-torn country where there's active, yeah. you know, like, gun. oh, I'm going to hide in my bathtub while I'm shot at. Yeah, and who needs electricity? Oh, I just... Even when I was young and I thought I was very adventurous, <laughs> like, I still needed to come home do you know what I mean like oh yeah like I went to Europe but then I I was always excited to come back home and like yes yes for all the like creature comforts that we're used to yeah yeah for sure I am not adventurous although we did go on the adventure when we went to Fort St. James BC Yes, we did. And we drove like mad women. And like, we didn't even have Google Maps. We literally had a printed map. And that's how we had to find our way 12 hours. Yeah. And then you were driving so fast that a cop coming the other way told us to slow down. It's funny how I remember this exactly the opposite. 
And I was like, Michelle, Michelle, Michelle. <laughs> and you're like, it's fine. As we like wind up a mountain going way too oh fast. Oh my gosh. I have a heavy foot. Um, yeah, the cops driving towards us <laughs> did the like slow down motion with his hands. We're like, oh. I'm like, so sorry, so sorry. <laughs> um, but that was probably like the most adventurous like thing that we've done. Yeah, I mean, we shot guns and we fished. Yeah. I really need to get my hair cut. Do you still have that hair, that gift certificate from Rory? Yeah, I do. I do. Go see him. He's amazing. Yeah, where is he? He works for, or he owns Shag Hair Salon, which is in Mission in Calgary. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm sorry, where? <laughs> Just a shout out to Rory. <laughs> he likes us on Instagram, so who knows? We're gonna have to tag him. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, because I want to get like, because the last time I got my hair cut, they butchered it. Yeah, cut my hair like in a kajillion different. It was like a full on Karen haircut, and then I like, don't... <laughs> it was really awful. And I told him was... about it, and I told him about your story in our podcast. Um, yeah, and he's like, he's such a lovely human that he thought like, here's a way that I can really help her given her situation and I know that was so incredible. He gave you a, a, coup, or a coupon, a uh, gift certificate for a free haircut. Yeah. Um, no, it was awesome. So I'm going to go see him and I want to get like a really kind of blunt, all one length haircut. Yeah. And yeah. Like your now that finally those short, stupid hairs that she cut so short are like actually long enough now. Yeah. Did you hear what I said? No. I said kind of like your personality. <laughs> Short and blunt. Short and blunt. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope everybody liked this episode. Mm-hmm. And if there's some weird editing, it's because my microphone cut out. And <laughs> oh, yeah. I did listen that to that cool. audio where you and her are carrying on this like conversation about like women giving birth in these impoverished countries. And I'm like, hello, yeah. hello, hello, yeah. hello. <laughs> And I'm like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm trying to like, uh-huh, over you. Like, pay no attention to my co-host here. <laughs> we'll see how this Hello? all comes out in the editing. Exactly. Um, yeah. So if you haven't done so already, you should follow us on Instagram. Yes. Um, at I did not sign up for this dot podcast. And Facebook at I did not sign up for this. And send us a message if you want to share your story. We would love to hear it. Yeah, whether it's COVID-related or not. If you have a crazy story to tell, we want to hear from you. Totally. Um, And just give us feedback. We asked for feedback after the last episode, and we've received tons of good feedback. So thank you so much. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's been really nice. All right. Have a good night. You too. Bye. Bye.